my name is Gibran Rivera, and this is the One Mind Podcast coming to you from Boston. Welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and health. Today, I am excited to share my interview with Gibran Rivera, an internationally renowned master facilitator, someone who has devoted his entire life to the development of leaders in organizational transformation. Before we jump into today's show, I want to remind you that the One Mind Meditation Podcast is part of an awesome podcast network called Podcastica. I encourage you to check out some of the great shows on the Podcastica network over at podcastica.com. Back to today's interview. I've known Gibran Rivera for a few years, and we've had overlapping networks of friends and spiritual communities and often would meet each other at parties. But this was really the first time that we've sat down and had an in-depth conversation together. And... It was an email written by Gibran and forwarded to me by a good friend, Kendo An, from episode one that made me think Gibran would be a great fit for the podcast, and I definitely wasn't disappointed. And in that email, Gibran detailed an extraordinary experience of healing from, I guess, what you could say would be addiction, and this experience he had of healing and awakening. And it came about through his work with medicinal plants or entheogens and working with a shaman. And it was quite an extraordinary story that he conveyed in this email. And knowing that Gibran is a very long time spiritual practitioner with a deep meditation practice, I was really curious to learn more. And so on the show, that's what we go into and and we cover a lot. It's a pretty wide-ranging interview and we talk about meditation, spiritual awakening, spiritual practice, social justice, addiction, entheogens, and much, much more. I think you're going to love this show. I loved doing the interview. Gibran has a big heart, a big mind, and a big soul, and we, we really had a good time. So let's jump in to my interview with Gibran Rivera. Gibran, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Really excited to be in conversation with you, Morgan. Fantastic, man. So great. I think we can dive right in. So you're a master facilitator, and, and you've devoted your life to the development of leaders and the organizational transformation. And and you're also particularly inspired by the idea of evolutionary leadership. So you've also been meditating, though, for 12 years. And from what you've told me, your, your whole practice has undergone something of a rebirth. And I'd love to talk about your work, your rekindled meditation practice, and, and also your social justice work and how all of these kind of marry into you, into like one flow. But first, that, can you share with us a little about just who you are? What, what's your story and how, how did you come to do the work you're doing now? And, and how does meditation fit in with that? Perfect. Uh, thank you for, for the question. And, yeah. and I like your line of inquiry here. Awesome. Um, as these are indeed the most important uh, parts of my life. Great. Um, we were just talking a minute ago about my family living in Western Massachusetts. Uh, yes. We moved to Western Massachusetts from Puerto Rico when I was 12 years old. Hmm. And I often start my story there. Yeah. Because that's the age at which I became a minority, right? When hmm. you are in the island, everybody's like you. And then suddenly that's not the case. And yeah. there's a lot of ideas, preconceived ideas about who you are. So it was my first experience of a very, very strong, very, very negative preconceptions mm. just as I was coming into the country or into the mainland. And that, I say that because that really shaped me and that shaped my, my thirst 
for justice. It was very clear, very quickly that something was not right. Yeah. And that I was on the wrong side of that equation, that, uh, that I and my community um, were, on the, uh, were on the receiving end on something quite negative. Yeah. And, and so it was at a very early age that thirst of justice, for justice was born. I think it's good and interesting to mention um, that we moved for very unique reasons. Uh, we moved uh, because my father actually found an intentional Catholic community mm. in Western Massachusetts, mm. a Puerto Rican community, a working class community that named itself a community that stood in covenant with each other and within what we call the charismatic tradition, which is as Pentecostal, it's as kind of fiery as you can get when yeah. remaining Catholic. So this 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 line of um, spirit and justice kind of came together literally right as we touched the mainland here. And there were wow. vestiges of it back in Puerto Rico. But I think that's where the story begins and, yeah. and it all kind of unfolds from there. Do hmm. well, unfold it for us, man. Okay, no problem. I can I can share more. The you know, the, so you become thirsty for justice. I became an activist and organizer very, very early on. Yeah. As, as a relatively young man, actually. And uh, even before going to college and went on to university again with this idea that, uh, that, that there was something wrong mm-hmm. and that people needed to do something about it and right. that justice was a goal and a purpose. And always, 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 um, with a spiritual practice or inquiry somewhere uh, somewhere uh, up front for me. So the, the two questions came together. I came to Boston College at the age of 18. I have not left Boston since. Hmm. I went right from BC into, uh, into organizing and political activism. And uh, it, then I, I went on to grad school again with the same the same kind of inquiry, the same kind of push, trying to bring it all together, the kind of intellectual pursuits. And, and uh, question yeah. for you, Javon. Sure. So all through this time, you you when you moved from Puerto Rico at 12 years old and you entered into this intentional context of this Catholic community, did you, were, were, those, uh, were those values that you took on when you came like the the pentecostal values that the catholicism i'm guessing you probably grew up with some of that anyways but yes i that's a great and important question yes i i took these values on yeah it was de- i definitely engaged and and i think it matters um be the, uh, your, your perceptive the question is important because um the pentecostalist practice the charismatic tradition Mm. um it's very visceral it's very alive Mm. um it's very embodied it's fiery um the spirit takes over you um possesses you and moves you Mm. you to dance to sing to speak in tongues right and and that was part of my upbringing within a tradition um the catholic tradition which would be perhaps a more mystical at its best yeah uh, and perhaps overly assimilated cultural not deep enough at its at its worst mm-hmm. um, so so those took that that combination mattered because it informed a particular experience of the divine at a very early age yeah and, and was that initially and i'm sure this is gonna obviously develop as you as you tell the story but was that initially kind of a refuge for you in relationship to this sense of initial uh i I don't know if the word dispossession is the right word but that that sense of of being a minority yeah it certainly was there there was an empowering something in it right Uh, a sense of being on the right side um and it was uh it was an early awakening yeah um but an embedded an embedded one so i often tell the story i answer the question that you're asking in terms of uh 
in in terms of awakenings, life awakenings, and yes. I often don't include that one. That one's sort of embedded. Uh, but it was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, maybe around the age of fifteen or sixteen, mm. that that gave a very powerful and empowering language to this political, socio-political experience mm. that I was having. Mm. Right. So this the spiritual aspects was was kind of assumed. It's just how things were. And, and this Malcolm X experience was a discovery. Mm. And, and I think it, it's... I it's, see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and if I went to continue the story in as short a way as possible, yeah, I would say that the next awakening comes sometime in graduate school when I start to read the critical theorists, uh, Foucault, Bourdieu, Deleuze, Guattari. Mm. Um because what they did is they deconstructed yeah. a lot of the orthodoxies that had shaped my identity, right? So both from the Catholic one to the Puerto Rican nationalist one to the sort of race politics that I had taken on, all of those things seemed to kind of claim a truth unto themselves. Mm. And what the what the postmodern theorists, the critical theorists do is they, they break that down, right? They show you how it's all constructed. Yeah. Um, that sends you in a sort of crisis, but the, but it is also a liberation. Yeah. Yeah. So that was an, an important step in the in this arc that you're inquiring about. Totally. I, I precipitated a crisis for me at university because I studied uh, – literature and then i encountered lit crit and slowly but surely you know i i wasn't even realizing what was happening in the the process of deconstruction and suddenly i found myself adrift right and i didn't even realize it it would it took many years it took actually joining you know eventually a spiritual community to be able to look back and and really understand what had actually happened. Mm. But and, and you just articulated it in a very clear way. And, and there's a very po- potent parallel, I think, because that would be the next awakening yeah. that I'll refer to, this kind of, this which included just joining a community. Mm. But, 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 but I was very aware of the deconstruction because I held so tightly to these identities and I kind of professed them in the world. Yeah, and so they were such a part of how I rolled in a way that them coming apart um, was very percep- was very perceptible. Yeah, um, pretty quickly for right. me. Um, but the third awakening then would be coming into contact with a spiritual master, a tantric mm. master, um, who gave me an initiation that was very potent and one that I was not looking for. I, you know, I was basically looking for something spiritual to do on, on September 11th in my post-Catholic stage. Um, mm. uh, it was three years after the September 11th. I wanted to do something because it was so loaded. Yeah. Um, you know, the country was in, in crisis. And so it was kind of this kind of neo-fascist moment that was beginning. And uh, anyway, I just needed to do something. And, and, and the critical theorists were not providing enough on the spiritual space. And, entered a meditation center and had this radical encounter with a master um, that changed that changed the rest of my life. But but it took about two years for me to come to terms with that, precisely because I didn't go in there as a seeker. Right. And I did not want to have a spiritual master. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did, yeah, I did. I didn't like the, the, the construct. I didn't like the scene, right? I didn't like the space. Oh, yeah. Um, I liked the experience that yeah. I had, but I didn't like anything else around mm. it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, curiously, and connected to, to this podcast and, and the work that you're doing, that happened within almost weeks, if, if not just a month or two, of my beginning to practice meditation on my own from mm. a book. Oh. From a, but basic mindfulness a basic Buddhist text probably called, I think it was called, What is Meditation? I just kind of started to toy with it. And within weeks of that, I was in this more, it was more of a yogic place than a Buddhist place. Yeah. And uh, I, I just received this this kind of, they had this potent initiatory experience. And it, it set me afire. I mean, it was, it was a legitimate uh, Kundalini awakening, yeah. even if I wasn't exactly sure what it was then. Yeah. And it was as I was peeking 
in my the the political path that I had chosen for myself. So um, within a year of that, I was running for public office here in Boston. I, mm-hmm. I, I was running for city council. Oh, okay. Um, Pause one second. Yes. All right. So this teacher, was this in the line of Muktananda? Absolutely. Okay, so, have, yeah. Yeah. And, Siddha and Yoga. Siddha Yoga. If you yeah. can, if you can just say a word. A word. Oh, well, well, first, um, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay, so you describe through. Let's just quickly recap, and then I want you to just, if you will, say a little bit about Muktananda and Siddha Yoga. But first, the, you describe three awakenings. The first was really this when you were fifteen and you encountered Malcolm X, and there, there was sort of. Uh, it sounds like an empowerment, a concentration of self, uh, and an awakening to a kind of context of social justice. It, and I'm, I'm giving this like short shrift, but just... Yes, yes. It, and then the next awakening you described is when you encountered the critical theorists and that the kind of rhythm of it was a little bit swinging the other direction, which was if if Malcolm X was a concentration of the self and then the, the critical theorists were a deconstruction... Um, and then the third one, the third awakening you described was when you encountered the spiritual master, the spiritual context, and, and you had this, this third awakening experience. One, you could say, obviously they're all spiritual in nature, but kind of this one more explicitly. Um, and, and all right, so that's really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about then just for everyone's benefit just a really short kind of explanation of of the tradition the context muktananda absolutely absolutely um i can uh, and i will um if if i i will share one detail here because yeah. i think it's integral to what you're asking yeah and and because it was a two-year process yeah. right and this kind of political run was right in the middle of it. So mm. in the middle of it, I'm becoming, there's a whole other identity, right? That yeah. is really taking hold. That has a strong, strong kind of ego projection attached to it. Right. And it is a year after running for office, about two years after meeting the guru, that my life comes tumbling down, mm. right? That I mm. basically lose everything that I had worked towards mm. in a relatively painful, scandalous, kind of archetypal, political, messy kind of way. Right. And I bring that up because it is after a two-year wrestling match with this, with this calling, with this initiation, with this teacher, within a week or two of that, that dramatic and painful loss, I am on my knees before the master, mm. right? So I am now in full surrender. So the the way I tell the story is she came to me that sweet way, right? Yeah. I didn't listen. And then she came to me the fierce way. Mm. <laughs> and I had to listen. Uh, and that is what kind of set me off on the path, right? So it wasn't just the initiation, um, but it was this two years of wrestling with what I had received. So if I had then then get to your question in this in this, in, in this go ahead. I, I want to hear your answer to the question but how would you characterize that like what would you say like in a sentence or two what were you resisting exactly hmm. well I can tell you what I was resisting on the surface yeah. uh, what I thought I was resisting and then I can tell you kind of what I discovered I was resisting yeah um I was resisting the scene and the and the construction of it, right? Mm, like it yeah. was uh, Muktananda came in the seventies, um, and his community peaked in the seventies, and a lot of the people there had that kind of seventies vibe, mm, yeah. <laughs> versus this kind of like Puerto Rican intellectual <laughs> <laughs> um, totally. early two thousands kind of vibe, yeah. but like you know, um, white ladies wearing saris, oh yeah. Um, People putting dots on their heads, bowing down before an empty chair, incense, pictures of gurus all over the walls. Yeah. Um, you know, most intellectual people um, in the Western tradition are not very interested. No, there's in a lot. gurus. Yeah, there's a strong allergy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And so that 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 was what I thought I was uh, rejecting. Um, what I was what I was really rejecting was the 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 undoing of my ego mm-hmm. that was uh, so important um, to my becoming. And and that is not to say that my ego had become undone, right? Yeah. But it was um, it was definitely a radical undoing of an identity that I held very passionately. Yeah. That allowed me to come to my knees. I often say that what was taken away were things that I probably could not have given, g- given up mm. um, of my own volition, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it was an act of fierce grace yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, so it is, a, it is an initiatory tradition. It's a tradition um, that, is, um, that is rooted in the idea of Shaktipa Diksha. That's mm. what the initiation is called, the Tantric Guru. Uh, can transmit their state onto you. You can experience a state of a full wakefulness in in, in, a, in what would be a, a very vivid initiation. Some initiations are very subtle. Mine was mm. very vivid. Mm. Um, so this this you, you I had a, a, a very potent experience of non-duality. Yeah. And uh, in that in that experience, in that initiation. Um, I was in complete oneness, in complete bliss, and uh, suddenly I heard the voice in my psyche say, "I am the guru." Um, the I am that was speaking was my own I amness, and it was so myself that I, for a second, thought I was going on an ego trip. Mm. Um, until it became very evident that, that she, uh, the guru, the lineage guru, Mahesh Vilasananda, the lineage holder of Muktananda was the first being that was ever introducing uh, themselves from inside myself and as my very self with my very I amness. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very, very, very radical experience. Wow. Uh, as I came down from the state, I opened my eyes and her picture materialized. It, it, uh, it became more real than a person standing in front of me. And we had this very potent uh, eye-to-eye contact in which... She was looking at me with whatever energy or self exists behind my own eyes. And mm. It was worshipful. It was as if I myself was God, um, and it was it was it was the ultimate experience that that a human could have. Um, even with all of that, Morgan, important to say, it was immediately coming after that that I was pretty much thrown off and judgment judgmental of the whole scene of the whole thing right um within seconds of, of kind of that very radical experience yeah so, and, and and to finish answering uh Chaktipat in these tantric traditions is the is the awakening of kundalini energy hmm. and a tantric guru can awaken that for you can, they can it. transmit their experience to you and then they are the best the best kind of guides for that awakening once this kundalini is unleashed they are the ones that can guide it up through your seven chakras and through your crown opening. Got it. Into the the, the, the moment of final union, and meditation then is is the practice and the path that best tunes you into that process. Mm. It, there's a number of other practices, including chanting, um, that are part of it. But but meditation is the core, the heart mm. of the practice. Mm. It's a very different kind of practice than the. And the Buddhist practices uh, that that kind of dominate the discourse in the West. Yeah, yeah. So, when you said there was this moment when you were really on your knees in front of her, and because I'm a little uncertain of the chronology, yeah, <laughs> that there was that like right in the middle of this crisis that you were having professionally. Like professionally that. and personally yes. so within within a week or two of my life coming apart yeah but it'll be my life yeah I mean, it, it was sort of lost some house kind of part my kicked out of my house was my partner um lost my reputation right yeah, Jesus. Lost kind of what uh my own self-regard was lost in yeah. that process um that's when i was on my knees before her and i think it's important uh, for your listeners, for us to, to know that to this day, it, uh, I have actually never seen her in the flesh. Mm. She exists. She's an embodied guru. Um, she lives in upstate New York um, in her ashram there. But she made herself less accessible as a body the same year that she gave me initiation. Mm. 
Um, so I haven't had, when I say on my knees, it really is before. It's a very, I mean, I'm physically on my knees, but it's very, before this kind of very esoteric experience of her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which has been, it's been powerful. It's been a powerful journey. It's evolved significantly, which I think and hope we'll get to on the call. Yeah. Uh, but it did lead to a very intense it woke a very powerful devotion inside of me. Mm. It was a very potent opening of the heart. Mm. Um, very, very potent. I think anyone, anyone that knew me before and after this crisis slash awakening, and many people are still in my life here in Boston today, still in community with me, they all kind of point to a before and after. It was very palpable. <laughs> mm, wow! To all, I became I became a very, 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 very different man. Yeah. Um, and and I think that is what what allowed me to become a facilitator, and mm. to shift my approach to to the political transformation that I'm looking for, that mm. I'm fighting towards. Mm. Um, it was that dramatic opening of the heart and that very, very heartbreaking grief of letting go, dying. Yeah. to a self that you had cultivated so powerfully. It was it was almost a year of deep grief, but that deep grief was underlined by this sense of something really powerful I'm waking up within me. Hmm. That yeah. the timing's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. I guess my next question, unless there was something else you wanted to say. No, about... no, no. I'm with you. Okay, well... <laughs> So that was about, what, 12 years ago? Yeah, 2006 was when when I, uh, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, when I bent the knee. <laughs> when, when you what? When I bent the knee. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I'm curious about a couple of things. I'm curious to talk a little bit about this sort of, you know, as you describe it on your website, that you've been meditating for 12 years that it's had ebbs and flows naturally like we all do and you recently though kind of had a, a reawakening or a, yes, or a reconnection yes. with your practice that would also seem to symbolize a kind of new chapter and also a kind of powerful letting go of yes. certain things i'd, lo I'd love thing is we have had or or, or some of my listeners have written in to me and they've said, I'd love it if at some point, and I'm not saying this was the case with you, but they, they said, I'd love it if at some case you could do a show on addiction. Nice. And and I I think that your story at least has some tangential or parallel parallels to that in Absolutely. That it might it might be an interesting track for us to go down. And of course, I'm curious to hear more about this story because I, I have seen something you've written about it and it's very yeah. powerful and I, I'd love it if you would you'd share that. I am I am more than glad to and thank you for asking Great. Uh, because it's, it, it is a momentous, it's a momentous shift and mm. very relevant uh, to the conversation that we're having. Let me contextualize it just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, please. More. So I will say that during those two years when I was not wanting to have a guru, I couldn't not meditate. Like, it was like this Kundalini awakening kept kind of moving me towards meditation. Mm. Um, so even if I didn't want the scene, I couldn't skip the practice, yeah. right? So, so I think that's important because the practice had this kind of, like, its own volition. Yeah. For even years after I turned towards the guru, right? It was right. this spontaneous happening of practice. It was just this deep calling towards that. It almost happened by itself. That's awesome. And certainly there were days, weeks, months of effort. But overall, the general structure is this was happening. I think it's also good to mention a, a, a parallel that was happening along all of this, which was by the age of 18, I was... It started to to both drink and smoke herbs, smoke marijuana, and at different levels of intensity. But probably by the time I was 24, um, they were daily practices. Uh, yeah. So so people often don't think of you know like 
high achievement or a lot of like political actions, strong spiritual development. And this, you know, it's often assumed that those things wouldn't go together. And in fact, success and spiritual awareness, success in the world and spiritual awareness, spiritual development allowed me to hide um, from the fact that I had an addiction, right? Mm. Because it wasn't getting in the way in the most obvious ways, yeah. right? It was certainly holding me back. And yeah. I would say maybe if I call it a 20-year addiction, then maybe the last 10 years um, were included uh, long periods of inner conflict and effort to change the dynamic. Yeah. Um, but but overall, there were daily practices, some breaks in between. Certainly after this crisis, there was a good number of months where I didn't touch anything. Um, but overall, big, big part of my life. And, and, and I think it, it, it has to do with with in some ways, I learned later, kind of being gifted with uh, with a lot of energy, yeah, and these being unhealthy ways to tone it down a notch, right? To shut down right. a bit of that intensity right. that, that is such a part of who I am. Um, so they kind of self-medicated or self-regulated that intensity um, with these substances. Um, they were helpful too. Um, I, I I I hate to like kind of blanket them as bad yeah um wonderful good times huge realizations um lots of bonding mm. um so i don't know paint them as paint them as black and white so that's the kind of addiction thread but i'll, I'll share a little bit about something that started to happen with the meditation and the siddha yoga practice so maybe roughly three years ago let's say uh, it, it was a lot of the spontaneity started to recede a lot of what came very easily um, wasn't, right? Even yeah. the kind of like attunement to what we call Shakti, like that energy that was so palpable that I would bring to my work that seemed to be always at my fingertips, even that was less. Yeah. And that set off a, a subtle spiritual crisis. Interestingly enough, um, uh, that was after what we would call my fourth awakening, which was the, the, the son, the birth of my son. Yeah. Uh, so having a son, um, having a child, um, was definitely the next big radical shift in my constitution, in my yeah. consciousness. And that, like meeting the guru, what those two have in common is that they both come with a radical opening of the heart mm. and a dramatic reorientation of how you stand in the world mm. and what's important to you. And what matters in life, mm. right? So those two have those parallels. So soon after having my son, um, that kind of crisis um, began, and, and it didn't feel as impactful because the other one was so big that this kind of felt just a little bit like a spiritual crisis, but it wasn't as dramatic as what had happened before. And the, it's relevant. Um, and directly connected to the question that you're asking, because it's set up a three-year process that leads me to this moment, which I call a fifth awakening. Um, so what I discovered, Morgan, uh, as I explored, as I inquired into this crisis, yeah. is that this energy that was very palpable was just becoming more subtle, right? And if you think of a yogic tradition and many other spiritual traditions as ascendant, right, as kind of moving up yeah. towards transcendence, yeah. in some way towards, if we use tantric terms, towards Lord Shiva, kind of more masculine, towards emptiness. Um, what was happening was that the energy was kind of turning around and becoming descendant, right, coming kind of back into the body. Mm back into flesh, more towards embodiment, right? Yeah. Towards earth. Yeah. Towards lower chakras, towards um, the holy feminine in some ways. Mm. Um, and that is that is what was starting to happen. And at that time, I started to do, to work with a shaman and work with some uh, plant medicines and other medicines and subtle medicines, not all of them, um, not all of them. Let's make a distinction in this conversation between yeah. what we would call ally plants and teacher plants, right? Mm. Um, so ally plants are plants that kind of open you up. Uh, they're, they're highly empathic. They, they help form kind of a 
field of connection. Mm. Um, teacher plants are often plants or substances that might not be plants that uh, that that kind of take you in such a dramatic journey that that they're teaching you something, right? That they're that they're they're almost like guides. Yeah. Um, I started to do this work, and it was very resonant with the spiritual shifts that were happening within me. Mm. Um, about a year ago, in the middle of this work, working with a teacher plant, um, I got a very clear message. And I remember, this is about 10 years of uh, like of effort to moderate or get away from the pot, especially. Yeah. Uh, the alcohol, somewhat, but the alcohol was a second. The pot was really kind of the intense practice the thing that kind of really had me mm. under its grip yeah um i had done marijuana anonymous i had done this whole program for myself where i would do x numbers of days a week and not x number of days right i i really wanted to moderate my use i didn't want to quit yeah um i wanted to prove to myself that i could moderate it and and, and i couldn't and in one of these journeys we're doing this shamanic work and one of the medicines said to me very clearly like I or it, right? Like this or that. You can't have both. It mm. was kind of a, almost like a jealous lover. Like, right. Um, it was, a, and he said, like, time to graduate. You know, time to move on. Time to like let leave this behind. Um, and the thing is, they're very different practices. Something you do, I don't know, once a season, <laughs> right? Yeah. In this very held space as a ritual, and the other thing is kind of this way of coping with daily life. Yeah. Right. So. So I am not, uh, I'm not a traditional anti-addiction speaker here, right? Because the traditional anti-addiction person is going to be like, you know, I know people in Marijuana Anonymous that wouldn't use uh, anesthetics before getting a tooth taken out, right? Mm. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's not the path that I have followed. Um, I kept failing, Morgan, even after the medicine had asked me to not to. Hmm. And so I took drastic measures. And in December um, of last year, I went to Mexico and I worked with a very, very, very potent teacher plant called ibogaine. And ibogaine is an African root. It is the best cure against addiction known to man. Mm. I mean, and it deals with drugs like meth and heroin, right? Like no one goes because of pot and alcohol, right? Wow. <laughs> like, um I just, uh, but uh, you know, I also I, I do the work with the medicine, so yeah. I have that curiosity as well. Yeah. Um, and I and I just I knew that my addiction, even though it wasn't to a serious substance, substance was serious. It was holding me back. Hmm. I went to this particular center because it worked with two other medicines. One of them called Cambo, which is uh, milder. Ibogaine is something that maybe you'll use once or twice in a lifetime. And the third is one that's uh, that's spreading like wildfire. Um, here in the United States and in the and in Europe now from the Amazon, it's a very very powerful medicine called ayahuasca. Mm. Uh, and so I work with the ibogaine. Uh, I don't have the time to describe the dramatic dramatic experience, but it's very medical, right? You 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 get an EKG before you go. Your vitals are constantly monitored. You have an IV about an hour before you take it. About an hour after, it's about a over altogether like a 36 hour process wow with about 12 to 18 hours of of high intensity um and a lot of psychedelia in the first maybe six to seven hours um very 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 intense um but it does it works on you both biologically and psychologically right it gives you a neurological refresh that basically eliminates your cravings right wow so so i my being free of pot and alcohol is not like I am working working through the 12 steps in a traditional way, right? Because of fighting off just cravings. I don't have the cravings, right? Mm. And I have this period of time during which I can, ref- using this three to four months to restructure my life. Yeah. Um, so that if the cravings come back, they'll be, they'll be more, they'll be smaller. Yeah. And I have been, I have reconstituted myself in such a way right. um, that the relationship is just not the same. I feel constitutionally different, and that leads me to the third medicine, and that which is connected to this 
to the fifth awakening, which is this awakening of the body, this turn towards the goddess and the earth. Mm. And which is this connection, this meeting with ayahuasca. So I really thought of that ayahuasca would be a beautiful kind of integrative step in this six-day retreat that I had. Uh, I thought ibogaine would be kind of where I would be most shaken. Yeah. But I was actually most shaken in the ayahuasca journey, which was significantly shorter. Mm. Um, I was forced to to really see um, so archetypal, not, not so much personal as archetypal fears, archetypal pains. Um, some of the things that humanity kind of runs from the most, that we fear the most, that we don't want to feel the most. And I think it's in not feeling those things, in running from those things, which is often why we meditate, so that yeah. we don't do that. Yeah. Uh, that that we create uh, so much suffering. So the the medicine, the ayahuasca medicine, um, among doing other things, in this case for me, it brought me face to face with 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 some of the the most painful things of our human condition. Mm. It, it shook me, it shook me to the core. It broke me down to to the state of a very vulnerable child. Um, and in that process, very different from the journey work I had been doing before, because a ceremony was held in a traditional Amazonian way. Uh, the medicine was had in a very pure liquid form. Um, I began this kind of relationship with ayahuasca that I, uh, that I now have, and I am now hold a uh, significant commitment to. Um, I, I intend to remain in, in relationship with the medicine. Mm. I, have, I have journeyed, I have done ceremony uh, with her. I call her a her because it does feel like a, like a mother energy, like a mother spirit comes to you yeah. and guides you, an earth spirit. Um, I've been in ceremony since. I will be in ceremony uh, after this conversation. Yeah. Seasonably, seasonally, uh, and with significant, significant commitment because um, I believe that she is bringing uh, something that, that, that the West and the world need right now, particularly given the crisis that mm. we are facing, the multiple crisis, especially the ecological crisis. And, and I, of course, I'll allow you to ask yeah. uh, any question, but I will say that all of this comes with a, with a potent revitalization of my meditation practice for both spiritual and practical reasons. I am in touch with a new aspect of my spiritual self, right? that I am getting to know uh, mm. more deeply. And meditation is by far the best tool. Yeah. I mean, the, the ceremony is is something that happens over this kind of contained period of time. But what matters to a ceremony is preparation for it and integration of it, right? Mm. And so meditation mm. is at the heart of that process. Mm. And then in a very practical way is when you're liberated from the use of substances, <laughs> So much energy is suddenly available to you. Yeah. Waking up in the morning is easier. Making the right dietary choices is mm. easier. Do mm. um, yoga practice and committing to it is even more necessary, right? Because this energy has to be moved and metabolized in your yeah. body in a different way. Yeah. Um, so I basically have not missed a day of meditation. Um, since this happened. Wow. And, uh, it's fantastic. Just, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. I, you can hear the kind of celebratory tone in my voice. Definitely. Um, the beautiful reconnection to the yeah. practice that has changed my life. That is awesome. And you're going on, it's been, I think last, we spoke last week and it, you had just crossed like the 100 days in a row. Yeah, just, just yesterday, uh, both of, of, of um, of um of meditation i'm about no i'm about to get on 100 days in a row of meditation there you go nice and uh i just did what i call my sober mala if you think of mala yes. mala beats that people use 108 uh, i celebrated that yesterday beautiful yeah yeah feeling powerful about that i pet man <laughs> so would you characterize like when you were talking about um if thinking of her as like an earth goddess, would you say that, would you call it like a purifying effect or would you call it like a heartbreaking effect? Like when you talked about like seeing some of the, and maybe this was the Ibogaine, I can't remember, but when you were seeing some of the kind of really painful, but yet not personal aspects of our humanity 
like tell me a little bit more about yeah. that like how how has that impacted you how are you integrating that into your or how is that just kind of integrated into your perspective on things and your process and just moving forward great great and important question um let me let me make a distinction that might be helpful for some of your listeners mm. assuming that many of them might have experimented with one substance or another um great as spiritual seekers so most substances that i've worked with feel like they're opening some capacity within you even the really potent ones right let's say even something like LSD, it mm-hmm. feels like it's opening up your capacity to see all kinds of things. Yes. Ayahuasca does that, but different from them, it does feel uniquely like another intelligence is communicating with you. Mm. It has that quality, and there's a feminine energy to it, a mother energy to it. And so, so that's the big distinction. Mm. And I know from reading and talking to other practitioners that, that she meets you. There's all, all kinds of things in common, right? She meets you where you're at. Mm. Somebody said something to me recently um, that I think is also helpful, and I will get to, to answer the question that you asked. But somebody said is, since she shows you the range of human emotion, right? From the most blissful to the most painful, mm. the most scared to the most kind of clear and visionary, mm-hmm. um, at a fundamental level, they, she gives you a kind of empathy mm. for other humans that's really hard to attain unless, you, you know, without 40 years of lived experience, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, there's something the way in which she speeds that up, right? Thus facilitating connection, right? Because you can tune in to so much of what people are feeling because you feel it so viscerally in yeah. ceremony. Yeah. So there were these moments, at least during that first ceremony that I had, where like I, I was more scared as she as it was coming on hmm. than I ever am for something like that. There's always some jittery, some nervousness when you're shifting states. But I was really scared. And I and and, and I said to the shaman, I'm it's something I've never I haven't said probably since I was a child. I don't remember the last time I ever said these words. I was yeah. like, Help me. I am scared, mm. right? And the shaman said, You're right where you need to be, right? I actually needed to have the full experience of being that scared and yeah. that helpless, right? Yeah. And then I was in tears and sort of breaking mm. down to a level of vulnerability that allowed me to continue to experience. So I cont- when I meet her, even in these hard times, I cont- my posture is one of yes and of surrendering, right? Mm. So t- t- the more comes on, and I say yes. I keep saying yes. I say my answer is still the same. Yeah. Whatever you want, I'm here, and I'm saying yes, mm. right? And so she takes me to this really painful ground. So an example would be, I'm having this really hard time, and then suddenly I am seeing my son being born, which is a peak life moment, mm, right? Mm. And I'm really thinking now this journey is going to ch- to shift. Now I'm entering the bliss stage of this journey, right? And then he moves from a personal me and my son experience to an archetypal experience. I'm seeing humans being born. I'm seeing us as flesh and bone, as made up of earth. And I'm having this very beautiful, vivid experience for us, Mm -hmm. this beauty of Mm -hmm. human birth right and I'm peeking on that and in that peak she says and babies die right Right. and she shows me the death of a baby (laughs) and she shows and I have Mm. to feel that most painful of human experiences Mm. right Mm. not just see it from away I'm having the heart pain of it right Yeah. so it's that at some other point I'm actually seeing and experiencing very viscerally you know a, a child being abused and, and desolate and, and and abandoned in ways that thankfully i didn't experience in my own personal yeah life, right and many 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 have people listening to this podcast have you know mm. and uh i had to see that and mm. not see it but she wouldn't let me be until i felt it in my bones yeah you know? until i was with that heart feeling of it and, and, and what that does is it, it does break your heart. 
right? But then, but she, she also holds you and brings you back together. Mm. And the message is as clear as day for me every time I see her. It's like everything is included. Yeah. This lifetime. Yeah. Includes everything. Yeah. Right? Which then allows you to be alive, to be with others, to do this work of justice, right? And to do this inner spiritual work of meditation and other practices with the awareness that everything is included, that this work is not to get away from here. Yeah. But to be here. Yeah. To be right here. That's awesome, man. Yeah. This, well, okay, so there's, I mean, there's a lot to say about this, and I wish we had more time. But, like, so quickly, the uh, I'm resonating very deeply with what you're saying. And, uh, and like, for me, part of what I'm hearing is it, it's for, you know, the 15 years I was in the ashram and, and devoted to, like, the, like, a lot of intensive spiritual practice. A lot of our focus was exclusively transcendent. And it was always just, you know, lift your eyes and, and uh, you know, you're going for the absolute in a certain way. But the interestingly, like, since I've left, it's kind of become clear to me in all these ways that I couldn't have imagined then because that, that was like the consuming vision I had that are apparent to me now was there's a whole spectrum. Maybe that what you might talk about is the more of the descent into the body of experience that we were bypassing. Right. And and part of my, a huge, I would say primary part of my experience since leaving the ashram and, and especially in the last year since I started doing therapy has just, and, and I mentioned this to you before, but has been a gradual but very powerful just, you know, feeling my heart just shatter. And mm. in that experience has been, I think, a kind of a, a quality of grieving that's constant. And it has it permeated my life in a very deep way and in, 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 in such a way that I thought you described, I, I, you described the experience of ayahuasca in a lot of the ways that I'm experiencing this process I'm going through that has been catalyzed since leaving the ashram where the grief, I, it's like, it's an interesting thing, man. It's a, it is the farthest thing from negative, I could say. It's, mm. it's healing, it's cleansing. It's, as you said, profoundly inclusive because I'm realizing this, like, as my heart breaks, man, it's just, it's open. It, it's like the world rushes in. Mm. And there's things, and people in particular, it doesn't matter if I know them or I don't know them, but man, the pain, the feeling is so intense. It's wow. unbearable, and and I I feel, you know, very uh, connected to what you're saying in the in the brokenheartedness of it, and that 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 is far. It's the farthest thing from what I used to think it was. I, and and I've said it before, but I really think there's so much. There's so much fundamentally, God is as much or more about this than about just purely the transcendent there's like it, it's yeah i I, yes. just, I hadn't had this experience before i had no idea and and i can see a part of me was interestingly i the way i think about it was dying mm. in or starving or cut or strangled from this humanity and wow i anyways i i felt you said it very beautifully and i i just wanted to also just kind of connect with you in that directly thank you so much the resonance is 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 quite clear Mm. and everything that you've said is feels like true Mm. the truth to me um in resonance with my experience yeah it's it's um and it's it's interesting yeah it's like a a way to think about it is you know the 60s 70s east came west yeah and a lot of the East that came to the West, not all of it, but a lot of it was in this transcendent tradition. Totally. And now we are looking at this uh, 
south comes north, right? Mm. And and this kind of this earth tradition, yeah. This, uh, yeah. And it's it's just a process, right? Mm. And, and 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 in India, people went through this when the tantra, when the tantric traditions emerged out of the Vedantic traditions. It was a similar mm. turning towards, mm. right? The the tantra, you know, if the Veda, Vedas say neti neti not this not, not that, that. Yeah. nothing exists that is not it i mean nothing is it only the perseverance and then and then the tantrika say wait a minute no nothing exists that is not it yes everything is it yes. we turn towards all of it yes. right and so there are traditions there are traditions that that hold uh, that being here matters and it's not that transcendence doesn't matter it's exactly. what's beautiful about the tantras is that it is the copulation yeah. of Shiva and Shakti. It is their <laughs> act of love, right? Yes. It, is, it is emptiness and fullness totally. coming together. Well, man, I know we have a hard deadline of about two minutes from now. So, you know, it feels like we're just, we're ramping up here and uh, we've got to kind of shut the gates. But that's, I'm so glad we had some time to talk here and I'm glad that you're able to share this with my audience. And I like to ask, well, first, did you, do you before I ask you to kind of share with everyone how they can be in touch with you, how they can follow up with you, what plans you have right now, what's what's going on that you're excited about? Is there anything else that you you wanted to say? Any like final thoughts? No, it just that it's been a pleasure. Likewise, that, let's see how it, you know. Let's see how the podcast is is received, and if we, if there is a desire for more, I would love to to keep going. For we sure, could jump, we could jump right back in. Totally. Yeah. So how, that's great. How how can people be in touch with you? Yeah, the best way to find me is at gibranrivera.com. That's G I B R A N R I V E R A dot com. Gibranrivera.com. I uh, most of my work is client work, but this June um, I will be conducting the second uh, evolutionary leadership workshop. Uh, which is a landmark experience that is transformational. It is for people who want to turn dreams into reality, people that have an idea that they've been holding on to for, for a long time, mm. but they have not been able to make it real. So it's specifically designed to take that idea out of your head and into the world. It's a five-day immersion, and it changes lives. Awesome. The Evolutionary Leadership Workshop. Fantastic. So everyone, I am going to link up Jabron's website, which he just told you about, and then I'll, I'll, I'll link that up in the show notes, and I'll also link up the link to. I imagine you have a, a landing page for that, Jabron. Yes. All right. So we'll link both of those up in the show notes, so you you can find those easily. And uh, fantastic, Jabron. Thank you so much. Awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah. Likewise, Jabron. Have a great day, man. Thank you so much. Many blessings, Morgan. You too. Peace. Peace. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Jabron. If you want to connect with Jabron directly, I've included all the links to his website and workshops over at aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast. And just look for episode 58. That's aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast. Head on over and check it out. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up our free series of Meditation for Life, Guided Meditations, and and also there's a three-part seminar. If you haven't picked these up yet, I encourage you to do so. Some great free meditation resources. And if you like the show, I'm telling you one of the best ways to support us and to help other meditators discover the podcast is by leaving us a rating and a review over on iTunes. So if you're a fan of the show and you haven't yet left us a rating and a review, this is a huge way to help us. And you can do that by heading over to aboutmeditation.com forward slash iTunes. Great. So let's wrap up this episode and let's do it with a quote from Swami Muktananda, who is the teacher of Gibran's teacher. And he says... The world is nothing but a school of love. Our relationships with our husband or wife, 
children and parents, friends and relatives. These are the university in which we are meant to learn what love and devotion truly are.